0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone. Uh, If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Well, we have in the past several weeks looked at the story of God creating Adam and then putting him into the garden and covenanting with him, binding him to that obedience to the moral law of God and that single law of prohibition in the covenant of works. And we've talked about his fall, his sin, and that it was his sin that plunged mankind as a whole into depravity and the consequences of death, and not the woman's. This morning, uh, we are going to look at some different aspects of the aftermath. Uh, One of the great questions that uh, is debated in many circles is, what happened to that covenant Adam was in? Did it pass away when it was broken and man was no longer able to keep it? Or did it somehow continue on? Uh, I'd argue for the perpetuity of that covenant. It's continuing binding nature on all men at all times. There are groups of uh, Christians today that reject that. And one of Primary groups uh, would be Arminians. Very common for them to reject the eternal binding nature of the covenant of works, and uh, there are reasons behind that. Um, for the Arminians, they reject the doctrine of original sin. The tenets of Adam's representative headship that we've just read in Romans 5, um, they do not believe that Adam's sin and guilt passed on to every single one of his descendants. Uh, they reject that and in turn reject the binding nature of the covenant of works. Uh, they don't believe that Adam operated in a representative manner. They reject that. Uh, instead, they believe that all are born and they sin and then become sinners. They don't sin necessarily because their nature is inclined that way. And again, I'm speaking generally about Arminians' uh Think that way and and believe that way, Um, but generally, um, they reject the foundation of depravity. Uh, In the tulip acrostic for the, the doctrines of grace, for Calvinism, the T, total depravity, is the foundation upon which the gospel sits. Man is fully depraved in the sense of he has no inclination towards good, towards anything that is righteous. His affections are entirely toward uh, sinful things. And those of us who have had children know that uh, there's no need to teach uh, children how to um, break our commands and violate what we uh, instruct them to do. They, they come forth knowing those things and preferring those things. Um, and we have to work hard to teach and train them to not live according to those principles. So, Arminianism is one of the main groups that rejects um, these tenets of original sin and that the covenant of works is uh, not binding. One of the reasons that they bring forward to support their argument for the covenant of works can't be binding is drawn uh, from uh, another error, Socinianism, that in light of the covenant of works, believed that God could not require of man what man was not able to perform. That's one of their main points of argument, that God could not ask, require of man keeping of a covenant that they had no ability to keep. What they're arguing for is that Everyone is born into this world and chooses to sin, becomes a sinner, and in that one act of sin, however early or late that one act occurs, they are then unable to keep this covenant. There are reformed camps, um, small and a minority, that agree with the Arminians that the covenant of works doesn't continue on, and their argument is a little bit different. They, they argue from a perspective of original sin, that all of us are born already guilty of violating this covenant because we bear the guilt of Adam. And therefore, recycling that point of argumentation by the Arminians and the Socinians, because all men are born guilty already, God could not require of them obedience to a covenant that they had already broken through Adam. And those are...
1: uh, If only he provided...
0: Right, and, and that's the thing. You see, the reason why the covenant of works and its binding nature is so important is without that, you have no other way. Without the obedience of Christ to that covenant of works born under that, keeping it perfectly, there would be no other way. And that's why the perpetual nature of the covenant of works is a hill worth dying on. Because without it, you don't have a gospel. You don't have hope. Our Confession of Faith, 1689, chapter 19, section 2, reads, The same law that was first written in the heart of man, context is written in the heart of Adam, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall, and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four containing our duty towards God, and the other six our duty man. So what the 1689 is arguing for there is a republication of the law of God. That same substance from the covenant of works. That Mosaic covenant, when eventually down the road we get to talk about the Mosaic covenant, we'll talk about how the Mosaic covenant republishes the principles of the covenant of works without itself being the covenant of works. It's reminding the people of what they were already bound to by simply being human beings descended from Adam. But that Mosaic Covenant, those Ten Commandments are given, and what was originally written upon the heart, the conscience, but seared over, overwritten through sin and depravity and wickedness, was now given in written form that could not as readily be altered, overwritten, or effaced. And in light of that, we believe that this covenant of works, the principles of it, continue on. That this covenant remains unchanged significantly, one point of alteration um, found. We talked about the conditions of that covenant, keeping the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and then that single positive law added in. One of the consequences of the fall was that Adam's access to the garden where that tree that was prohibited, was located, was cut off. And that positive law, a positive law being a law added to the law of nature, in that case fell away. Positive laws are designed to be temporary. They're not moral. They are designed to teach as a tutor things Uh, that God desires to instruct man in. We talked about that single positive law was God's means of tutoring Adam in obedience and subservience to the greater dominion of God. So that positive law, having been broken, has fallen away. But the substance of the rest of the covenant of works continues on, binding upon all men at all times. The moral law, being the law of nature, a reflection of the character, nature, and attributes of God, was so designed for Adam that in perfectly keeping it, he would be a right image bearer of God. And the reason why we are all sinners and in every way not rightly imaging God is due to the fact that we have, not just through Adam, but ourselves, sinned, and are now no longer imaging God rightly. So originally this law was given in a form that was written upon the heart. You know in the New Covenant, the promise that the law would be written upon the heart is a rewriting upon the heart. The heart being the seat of thought, the seat of decision, the place of rational thinking that the law would be written there and that the desires of the heart would spring forth in response to that. It was originally written there, but the fall led to it being the face. What we read in Romans 5 supports this premise that this covenant is still binding because did you notice the fact in verse 13, this important principle For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. We talked about imputation being Adam's guilt being given to all mankind. The fact that there could not be sin and guilt imputed if there was no law in place. And then verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. And that in that state, all of mankind was under the law. For until the law, sin was in the world. Without the law, there is no (coughs) sin. The law continued to be binding, and there is evidence of the knowledge of the moral law of God. Every single command throughout all of Genesis, even in the early chapters of Exodus, before its given again at Mount Sinai, and I've done a Sunday school class here on that, looking for that evidence. So that positive law has fallen away. There is no requirement, command for all mankind to avoid eating of a specific tree anymore, because that tree, Adam lost access to it, it was cut off from him, and the garden was destroyed in the flood. It's not existing anymore gone. And God could not require of man what he was not able to have access to and perform. So, question. Why is it important to distinguish between the two different types of laws, the two different conditions in this covenant? Why is it important to distinguish between the positive law of not eating of the tree And that uh, command to keep the moral law of God. I think it's important to recognize that uh, the covenant of works now only being comprised of that moral law and that positive law falling away didn't necessarily make it any easier. You know, if all of us somehow could enter into the world without, you know, Adam's guilt being upon us and us already being sinners, how long would it take for us to sin like Adam did? <coughs> Not very long. I would have probably done it as a child. So, it's important to recognize the difference and to see that that positive law functioned differently than the moral law of God did. The positive law tutored Adam toward realities uh, of submission and obedience. The moral law of God uh, in that condition was the means by which Adam would perform a perfect imaging of God in the world. And the reason why we can speak of sin in every age of human history is because this covenant of works is what binds every man to the moral law of God. It's the only covenant of Scripture outside of the Noahic covenant which is concerned with different things uh, But it's the only covenant that includes all of mankind. The Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants only comprised the descendants of Abraham. The rest of the nations of the earth were not under those covenants and never were, never will be. Can I I ask a question? Yes.
1: Speculation. his if he would he have, could he have stolen or murdered or was it the eating of the tree and breaking positive law that made him break
0: the moral law? That That's a great yeah. question. Um, if he had broken any of those commands, which would in- include you know all of the Ten Commandments and in some way sinning in that without partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have still been guilty of violating the covenant and all the consequences of the fall would have come upon him. The conditions are equal in the sense that the consequences are triggered immediately by the violation of any of them. And we're actually going to talk about, I don't know if we'll get uh, to the material today, but we'll talk about how in Adam's action of partaking of the tree, he didn't just break the positive law, but he violated... Every single command, more law. So he, he, he didn't just violate, you know, a single condition. His action led to him violating every condition and every nuance of it that God had given him. So.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes,
0: absolutely. Um, I believe that uh, life starts at conception. And David in the Psalms speaks of how he was conceived already a sinner. And from that moment of conception, he is already bearing in the, the being and his soul the weight of the guilt and condemnation of Adam. Adam's action um, for... Every human being, including children in the womb, it's as if we all perform that action and are guilty of it. That's kind of how that imputation works. And so we all, as children, entered into this world already with our consciences seared, uh, our, uh, our bodies destined towards physical death, already spiritually dead. And that there isn't a moment where a child reaches and then they become those things. From the moment they enter into this world, they're already sinful. Um, and that all of their actions um, are a reflection of uh, what we see in Romans 3. Um, they may not have knowledge of many things, but they're still bearing guilt, which is why um, death is not something that's just confined to those who are aware and have knowledge of things. Death exists. For all areas and spans of life. So Even is that you, know, how you
1: comfort someone who loses a baby? Yeah. A or how do you them for that?
0: That's a great question. Um, I think our confession faith is very helpful there. Um, scripture does not speak authoritatively and clearly on what happens to those who die in infancy. Um, <coughs> you can make the argument both both directions that you know they're um, bearing the guilt of Adam, and it would be right of God for them to have uh, punishment. But you can also make the argument that God is good and right and that he could, because they have not sinned to themselves and they're in a state of the lack of knowledge, that he could um, preserve. Uh, the, the terminology elect infants uh, appears in our confession. Um, and in speaking to someone who's, who's lost a child or a miscarriage or something of that sort. Um, the encouragement I would give is: Scripture isn't clear, but we know the character of God. We know that He will do right. He's good, uh, and that this this life, this soul, is important to Him, and He will do right. And I, I would direct them instead from speaking authoritatively to one or the other to trusting God's character um, and knowing that He will do right. Um, it will be what is right. Uh, And I think, again, our confession speaks very clearly and plainly of that. It's not um, authoritative on one or either side, but that God is able to do all things and that uh, it does lean towards uh, the elect infant um, uh, side in its language somewhat. Um, So that would be the encouragement I would give. Um, There are stories in Scripture that are used, I know, with... um, David, Bathsheba, and the son that was born that died, uh, that's often used, um, and yet uh, I don't think that's a definitive, um, clear, this is normative for all. Um, But it's an interesting question. Um, God has not given us specific um, clarity on that, Um, and so we entrust those things, as with all other things that are not clear to God do right, because he's good, um, and he is merciful in yeah.
1: you Could you just read us the, the section from the confession?
0: Yes. Let's see if I can pull that up here.
1: While you're doing that, there's also an R.C. scroll book. Right? Chris isn't an R.C. scroll, safe in the arms of God. Um, um, that might be MacArthur. Oh, MacArthur, oh, okay. I remember that when we had our miscarriage, you had recommended one of those. In his goodness, he can determine something that to me sounds absolutely
0: bad. I think that gives us great comfort um, that God Himself is um, to be trusted with all of these things. You know, the, the great problem and dilemma of like, how can, a, how can God be infinitely good and holy and righteous and sovereign, control, all powerful and yet still um, have sin present in this world and evil and, and wickedness and you know the death of uh, life in the womb um, whether it be just the natural cause of things or whether it be um, by abortion or or such things um, but
1: 10, section three if elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved spirit who works when and where and how The same is true of every elect person who is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. What it does is it leaves the mystery to God and allows him the sovereignty to save when and how um, he and and where he pleases. And um, and if he has chosen to, um, to save one who is either an infant or one who is by some physical or mental unable uh, to outwardly hear or understand um, or be called, allows God the leeway to work in that soul um, how he pleases.
0: Which I think is a really encouraging thing, (laughs) that it doesn't depend upon our interpretation of a story or this or that. It's hinging upon the character of God. And it is a mystery. You know, we don't understand all of the things that are bound up in um, a life suddenly becoming a reality in the womb, a unique soul, and how original sin is exactly transmitted. Like those are mysteries. We don't we don't understand those things. Scripture isn't clear, and uh, and the deaths that happen in the womb or young children out of the womb. Um, God is doing um, what in our eyes. Uh, it, sometimes it's hard to, to, to fathom how someone so young would not have a chance at life, um, and yet all of that God is sovereign over, um, and comforting the hearts of, of parents with the truth, you can trust God. This is an area in which what is true of his character and attributes will also be present and true there. So, but it's, it's difficult. I know that there are some here who have lost children uh, in the womb and um, wrestling with that, and it's, it's difficult and it's hard, um, and yet you can trust God. Um, God will do right. So we've talked about the ways in which the covenant has changed first by the positive law falling away, And then second, the federal nature of the covenant of works has changed. There there is no one today who is born under the covenant of works who occupies that same office that Adam occupied outside of Christ. None of us has been given the incredible responsibility of our actions performing either a righteousness or bringing guilt and condemnation upon our descendants. Think of the pressure of that. Could you imagine if your moral performance determined the future of your children? That would be terrifying. I would feel incredible guilt and pressure. Who knows what Adam felt? I I don't know, and Scripture doesn't speak of that. But you see in this a mercy and kindness of God that it's not upon us to perform and that impacts our children. There is a sense in which just by nature our actions impact our children, right? Our sin can have consequences upon them, but not consequences that are of this kind. And that should give us comfort and encouragement as parents. If, if we've seen, you know, children that are grown and we look back and, and think, I wish I would have done things differently. I wish I would have been more faithful in teaching them the principles of the scriptures and of the gospel, and yet recognize that you didn't have this upon your shoulders. You, you're you not responsible for uh, their rejection of the gospel and for their sin, uh, which takes a, a weight off of your shoulders, does it not? Um, our actions do impact our children, but our children are morally responsible for their own actions, their own sin, their own rejection of the gospel, their own accepting of the gospel. And so ends, we see a, a mercy and kindness of God that we're all functioning as independent moral agents with no one representing us outside of Adam except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture, we read Romans 5, speaks of Christ being the second Adam, implying that he occupied the same position that Adam did. Adam's actions determined what would come upon and be true of all of mankind. Christ's actions determined what would be true of all that he was representing. We believe that Christ in his active and passive obedience, both in his life and keeping the moral law and then conforming himself to the will of God and dying and laying his life down on the cross, all of that was performed, not just for himself, but for the sake of all of those who are represented in him. The elect, the people of God. And so outside of Adam and the second Adam Christ, there is no federal representative nature in this covenant any longer. None of us bear that weight and responsibility. We are able to cling to one who bore that weight and responsibility himself. One of the studies that I've enjoyed doing is reading the Gospels and looking for all of the different ways in which Christ performed the moral law of God, looking for his righteous, active actions. And you see in him one who always responded the right way, who always performed the will of God, not his own will, who always imaged rightly God which gives us encouragement because if we're clinging to Christ for salvation, when we see the righteousness of Christ lived out because that righteousness is now ours, that's how God the Father sees us and treats us. And that's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed reading about the righteousness of Christ because in it I know that that's how God the Father sees me. And that's how he sees you if you're in him and have Christ's righteousness alone for salvation. So, those are the two different ways in which the covenant of works has changed. That positive law has fallen away. The representative nature is not something that's passed down to every single descendant. It went from Adam and lay dormant until the person of Christ. But, the covenant of works in continuing on past that point we need to recognize the different ways in which the covenant of works was manifested and um, known by men. We've talked a lot about how the old covenant was a republishing of this covenant of works. When Moses was getting ready to go out Mount Sinai to meet with God, he and all the nation of Israel were already bound up under the covenant of works. And in bringing them down, it was merely a written Reminder of what they were already bound to. In fact, the Egyptians that the nation of Israel had just come from, the Egyptians themselves were bound to this covenant of works. All men outside of Abraham, Moses, and the descendants that followed, that are physically Jews, all of mankind at all times, all lands, all languages, are bound up under this covenant. And so when we look at the Old Covenant alongside the rest of mankind, we see something that is true of them both. They're all under this covenant. The Old Covenant, as we've spoken of, and I will just briefly remind you, the Old Covenant was pointing to the gospel. The Old Covenant did not provide any salvation whatsoever because the Old Covenant only promise promises that were realized that were focused on temp- temporal things the land a descendant a physical king in the davidic covenant all of it was bound up with temporal physical temporary reward that they could lose and forfeit if they were not obedient and again the old testament account tells us that They were rebellious, and the the, the nation of Israel continued on in their sin. And what did God do? He brought upon them the consequences of the curse in that covenant system, and they were cut off from the land. The throne of David, the line was broken. The people were carried off into captivity. And we'll be talking about that tonight. Not all of them returned. From captivity. In fact, most of them didn't. Of those 12 tribes, 10 never came back. They ceased to be the people of God. They ceased to have those covenantal promises of remaining in the land. And so these Old Testament covenants were, were, were not ever a means of providing salvation, they were a means of pointing to where salvation was, which was in the covenant of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And those covenants had types that pointed to those realities, but it didn't save. And the same was true of all the Gentile peoples. They had this covenant of works still upon them, but for them it functioned in a way that was different than it did for the nation of Israel, for the Jews. The Jews were to keep it perfectly to earn and maintain temporal reward for the Gentiles They had no promise of temporal reward attached to it. They merely had to keep and perform it absolutely perfectly in order to be right before God. But of course, they're born into the world sinners, already guilty. They can't keep it. The difference between the Jew and the Gentile was that through these Old Testament covenants that were a republishing of the covenant of works, with it were gospel promises pointing to the one who was to come, pointing to the coming covenant of grace, and the people could see those promises, look through them to the gospel and believe. The rest of the world didn't have those things. All they had was Genesis 3.15, the promise of one that was coming, and who knows how much of the knowledge of that had even uh, lasted a few generations before it was lost. When we get past Adam into the period uh, from there to Noah, we see very quickly that it was lost rapidly, rejected, rebelled against. And so the reason why the Jews had advantage was they had the gospel in promise form, not in covenant form, but promise form, while the rest of the nations of the earth did not. So that's the difference. The covenant of works was binding upon all men at all times, both Jew and and Gentile. The Ten Commandments were known before they were given at Mount Sinai. And I have taught material before, demonstrating evidence of knowledge of it, not just by Abraham and his descendants, but also by pagan Gentiles. You think of uh, Abraham and him going to Egypt and Um, lying about his wife and the wife is taken into the household of uh, Pharaoh and the knowledge there, and even later doing it with uh, King Abimelech, uh, the knowledge of Abimelech of the wickedness of that thing demonstrated um, a a clearer understanding of that moral principle than Abraham was showing at that moment. Um, And so all throughout Genesis, all of the Ten Commandments, the knowledge of them are present and people responding uh, in obedience, uh, even people who are not believing upon Christ, pagans demonstrate that knowledge. So these commands continue on. They're binding at all, uh, over all over at all times. The Abrahamic covenant um, reaffirms the binding nature of that. Uh, the principle of walk before me And the reality there is that God was requiring all who received that sign of circumcision to walk before Him and be blameless, keeping the law perfectly. The Mosaic Covenant republishes it in a written form. And then all throughout the Old Testament, you see the lack of performing what God commanded. And all of it functioning in the words of the New Testament, as a tutor to Christ, pointing them away from those Old Testament covenants that brought no salvation to them, only showed them where salvation would come from, pointing them to Christ, pointing them away from um, these Old Testament covenants that were focused on temporal things. Um, A covenant of grace cannot be something that is temporal something that you can lose and forfeit by your lack of obedience. A covenant of grace is something that is uh, eternal, spiritual, and is not ever able to be lost. This is an important distinction in covenant theology, one that uh, in future as we progress uh, through uh, the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, um, we will begin to see why this distinction is so important. And why the Old Testament uh, was not a covenant of grace with a mixed membership. It was a temporal covenant of works with a mixed membership. The majority were in that temporal side trying to perform obedience. And the rest had looked through the promises and were spiritually the children of Abraham. But they were actually participating in the new covenant. And it was revealed to be the case when the new covenant was ratified. That's the difference. That's the distinction. But what's important for us to recognize here is that the covenant of works is at the foundation of every covenant of Scripture that follows it. Hosea 6, 7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They, the nation of Israel, has dealt treacherously against me. Sinning in a manner like Adam, violating the old covenant, which was a violation of the original covenant works. They, just like Adam, transgressed like him and the same covenant that he also transgressed. So what does that mean for us? Is anyone here know that if you have any Jewish heritage? Or are you just a common Gentile mutt like I am? You know, I, I've done genealogy stuff and you know I'm from Northern Europe and all over the UK together. I have no Jewish background. And so when I read the Old Testament scriptures, I'm recognizing that not all that's there is something that is true of me. Let me explain what I mean. I know that Adam's covenant of works is binding upon me because I'm a human being. The Noahic covenant is made with all men, the earth and even the animals. And I'm on the earth and I'm a human being and that covenant is applicable to me. But when we get to the Abrahamic covenant, that's when things change. I've never been under the Abrahamic covenant in that sense. I never will be. I've never been... Under a covenant that required obedience for temporal reward, and the same is true of the Mosaic covenant. I, I'm not under that covenant, and the Davidic covenant. I'm not under that either. I'm not having that uh, binding requirement of obedience so that the uh, throne of David continues. And so when we when we read the Old Testament and recognize that not all those covenants are are covenants that we're under, we need to read recognizing that truth. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see someone who is born under all of them, just as every other Jew was. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see him perfectly fulfilling and then putting away forever the old covenant system. So it's not just that I'm not under the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants, it's that they're no longer in force even now and you read them in that light and recognize that there's some Christ in that religion.
1: I was thinking would, would you say that if we get the cup works wrong in our theology um, not only are we believing the Bible incorrectly but that it can also affect our moral application in our regular Christian life I think yes. the Galatians and, and mm-hmm. the Judaizers like, what, what would you say some of the temptation maybe be in, in our context Get the covenant of works wrong, where, where can we land off that sort of error?
0: Yeah, um, I think one of the, the important principles uh, that comes to mind is that if you get the covenant of works wrong and you hypothesize that the covenant of works is not something that was binding and it was not something that Christ kept, then you ask the question, What did Christ keep? Did he keep the old covenant? that's true, then all of us here who have no Jewish heritage have no hope. That's fundamentally the implications because you and I are not under those covenants, never been. And so if we practically see the covenant works incorrectly and have a misunderstanding of it, it's not just that we are going to misunderstand entire portions of scripture, but we don't really have a gospel. We have a gospel that can maybe go forth to Jews that's going to be for them uh, not really spiritual in nature, but more about them maintaining possession of that physical plot of land in the Middle East and all of the temporal things surrounding it. See, that's the implications of this if you're following it um, consistently. Um, And I think that that is um, one of the errors in the Judaizers' thinking. They, they believed in their thinking that everything was summing up to where everyone became a Jew. And that they had to receive circumcision and everything had to be funneled into that. And the reason why the apostles spoke so clearly against that was their recognition that being a Jew outwardly meant nothing anymore. It didn't mean you had access to those temporal things. In fact, in the Old Testament, having all that external reality of circumcision and all of the ceremonial laws, that didn't mean anything about spiritual access by faith to the promises of God. didn't mean anything. And so, for me, that's one of the most important implications. If you don't rightly understand the covenant of works, you don't have a gospel. You have a gospel that's focused on temporal things, only for the Jews, and there is no gospel for us. So, for me, this is a hill worth dying on. This is a hill worth defending to the last man. The covenant of works has to continue. Otherwise, um, how in the world can you convince a non-Jew that they're, uh, they've committed sins themselves? Because if the moral law is only first given at Mount Sinai, then it's only binding upon the descendants of Abraham. Those are the implications. They're big. They're important. That's why this is important. And getting kind of down into the, the practical things in, in, in the Christian life, um, there's so many different ways in which wrongly understanding the covenant of works changes things. Um, so it's important. Would you say that
1: if someone doesn't understand the covenant of works and the distinction between that and the new covenant, um, there's a tendency. you to the original position of Adam, and you have to keep that covenant in sort of perpetual obedience. And this is just, you know, I've I've spoken to people who think in these terms of of, of morality, that, you know, that you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you know, God is gracious enough to let you in, but you have to sustain it, and then hopefully you
0: The substance of that is Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Baptism of infants in Roman Catholicism washes away the guilt of original sin. And then the rest of their life is a balancing act. Am I going to perform just enough good to outweigh the bad and maintain the right standing before God? That's, That's the fundamental principle of Roman Catholicism. And that's why the Reformation happened. They they recognized that the the system upon which all that was built um, was wrong, that the covenant of works violation in Adam was only forgiven to the person of Christ. And baptism uh, has nothing to do with that. Um, Even our Presbyterian brothers would react against that error and say, absolutely not. There is no such thing as baptismal regeneration. Baptism of any person does not cleanse them of any sin at all, original or actual. Um, so yeah, you will find all sorts of different types of people with all sorts of uh, twisted understandings of um, the covenant of works and its implications and, and its connection to the covenant of grace. And you know, I, I've talked about in the past that you know there really is only fundamentally one covenant um, in scripture. Compared to one other covenant, it's either the covenant of works you perform it yourself perfectly, which you can't because you're born already guilty of it, or you stand in the perfect covenant work keeping of Christ, who performed it absolutely perfectly. Which is why I love reading the Gospels. You see the perfections of Christ, a real sense of um, what was required and how God sees us. So yeah, these these things are important. That's why I'm spending some time digging a little bit deeper. Um, You may feel like I've hit some of these things before, but I'm wanting to go deeper into them so that we understand more broadly uh, in that way the implications. So I appreciate your questions. Um, Any other questions uh, on this material?
1: Yes? So so you said two things today that caught my attention. One, we talked about the parents' um, implications for their children and sin implications for the children. Then we talked about the land promises and having a little bit of difficulty. The moral law is given, and both those things are referenced inside the moral law. Um, How do you separate that out in in the context of covenant theology, um, and specifically that context of Exodus 20, where that law is being given to the Jewish people?
0: It's a great question. Um, So, Exodus 20 is that account where on Mount Sinai God gives the Ten Commandments, and they're listed, and there's a separate account of that in Deuteronomy, uh, a parallel. So in the system of covenant theology uh, that I'm teaching, when that's happening, it's not that God was introducing anything new. It was already present upon them. Uh, And so they functioned in the way of being a more clear reminder and written representation of what was required of them already. Um, And that in that sense, they were um, binding upon them Uh, the same way they were upon the Gentiles. Absolute perfection, perpetual, exact, in order to be right before God. But they function in addition to that towards those temporal things, those temporal blessings. Um, And you read the language uh, there in in Exodus about the conditions that uh, were placed and the promises and the threatened curses, and you recognize they're really all focused upon temporal things. Um, God's bringing of the curses upon them uh, really didn't have anything spiritual uh, in them in the sense of God was cutting them off out of the land, bringing judgment. So that's the distinction. The Jew and Gentile have the same reality of under that covenant of works towards being right before God, which is a dead end. But for them, they also had that added implication of Performing it had an incentive, temporal blessing and prosperity as a means of uh, encouraging them in those things, all summed up in it being a tutor towards Christ. So that's a, that's a good question. It's an important distinction uh, because there is similarity, but there's that added uh, reality of the temporal promises and temporal threat and curses there. Our goal this morning is to look at the aftermath of the fall, what happened to Adam, and what happened to the covenant of works. In Romans 5, we see perhaps one of the clearest uh, displays of the widespread consequences of the fall. So Romans 5, verse 12, therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many remained sinners, even so, Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord.